the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, thank you very much, and good afternoon. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Lifeline. Lots to talk about today. No absence of news, and a lot of it not all that exciting, uh, neither. We're going to get into uh, much of the stories of the day, in addition, of course, to the California fires and uh, what has been uh, transpiring as a tragedy there on the tarmac in Kabul, Afghanistan. I want to lead with an important story that impacts every one of us. Experts now warning the COVID surge amongst children may get worse as more schools reopen. Sarah Bartlett has the details. The American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association report more than 180,000 new infections last week. That means cases have quadrupled in just the past month. Hospitalizations are at the highest level, with at least 300 kids admitted in the past few days. The most are in Oklahoma, Ohio, Louisiana, and Kentucky. I'm Sarah Bartlett, NBC News Radio. Sadly, much of this, uh, in many circumstances, is uh, due to, well, quite frankly, just the lack of of the cooperation amongst many uh, to either make sure that distancing is taking place, masking is taking place, or vaccinations are taking place. Let's get more details now. We're joined by Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus from UC Berkeley, Professor Emeriti Academy of the School of Public Health, Division of Infectious Diseases and Vaccinology. Professor, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. First, in terms of what we're seeing, some of these levels of infection, not only amongst children, but even amongst adults, seem to be back to almost where we were a year ago. Is this largely due to the mutation and things like Delta variant, or is a good part of it due to the lack of complete or as total as we could possibly hope to achieve vaccinations amongst the general population? Well, thank you for asking me to join you today. The explanation for this terrible surge we're having this summer, which is really considerably worse than the one we went through last summer, um, is in part the Delta variant. And I think to a large extent, the Delta variant. I say that because we know that this variant of the virus that causes COVID is twice as transmissible as the variant that we dealt with last December and January when we had such a terrible time. So it's very, very transmissible. And that alone is a sufficient explanation for an awful lot of this surge. Another explanation is what you were saying, and that is that, you know, in in the middle of May, when the CDC announced that uh, they were going to loosen up a lot of the recommendations, and then here in California in the middle of June, we did the same, that began... Uh, this movement towards thinking it's all over. We're talking about the end game of the pandemic, and we no longer really have to worry so much, and we don't have to be so careful. 
and people weren't being as careful. Um, people were doing a lot of things that would facilitate transmission, and that coincided with the emergence of Delta here in the United States. And so that combination of people not being as careful with masking, social distancing, getting together with large crowds of people, combining that with a variant that is twice as transmissible really is just leads to the conflagration that we're having right now. I have to wonder, too, Professor, if a big part of this is just a fundamental lack of understanding of, of how viruses operate. I mean, for example, if we go back a year ago, uh, late December, January, I I think most of us have sort of the impression that um, the COVID virus just kind of hit suddenly, almost as if we turned on a switch. But I would (coughs) wonder if on the backside, there isn't anticipation that somehow, as easily as it got turned on, that it would suddenly get turned off. But it seems, at least in terms of the spread of the Delta variant, that it, when and if there's going to be a end to COVID, it's not going to be an off switch, but rather a gradual fade. Is that accurate? I think that's the most plausible um, outcome for this pandemic. It's it's going to die off with more of a whimper than suddenly. I think we're going to see these undulations of surges and then getting better continue. And they're going to get better as we get more and more people vaccinated. And so I think we'll see the undulations. I think we're very well in for a significant number of cases in this winter again. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm cautiously optimistic that people are starting to recognize how important the vaccine is. And as we get an awful lot of people vaccinated, this virus is going to find fewer and fewer homes to go to, and there's fewer and fewer susceptible people. And we'll start to see, we'll see these, these waves get less and less and less over time. In the foreseeable future, unfortunately, there's no way to completely eradicate the virus. Um, it has animals that can live in, So I think we're going to be living with it a long time, but we're not going to be living in the circumstances we are for a long, long time. There's certainly surrounding this whole situation a lot of misunderstanding, misinformation, distrust. Uh, I I understand all of that. Maybe you can kind of at least break down and help us better understand a couple of very fundamental basic components to this. First, let me ask you a very fundamental question. As we talk about things like parasites, and a virus. Are they the same? No, well, parasites just means any microorganism that essentially feeds on us, that uses us for its ability to get nourishment and replicate. Um, Parasites typically we think of as protozoa or worms um, that do cause a terrible amount of disease, not so much here in the United States, fortunately, but around the world. they, They just cause really human misery. Um, viruses are a very, very different animal. They're very different from bacteria. They're the smallest forms of uh, mi- microbes that cause human disease. And they, there's even a debate as to whether they're alive or not, because they can't survive without getting inside of our cells and replicating. So they're a very queer animal, these viruses. Yet they're all around, and they've been around for eons. As long as, as, long as there have been cellular animals, there have been viruses. So if they 
in a sense, are very different and in some ways behave very differently. Help us understand, and again, I think this kind of goes back to the heart of, of questions related to misinformation and distrust, and that is that if a virus and a parasite are not the same thing, why are we seeing percentages of individuals that somehow believe that medications specifically formulated to treat a parasite will somehow eradicate a virus? And I'm speaking most specifically about people that have believed in taking things like hydroxychloroquine that's actually formulated to deal with a malaria parasite. Or more recently in the news, we've seen uh, intervectin, which I understand is is actually designed to treat heartworm and ringworm. It can, there are apparently formulations for human consumption, but both of those cases seem to fall in the parasite category, not in the viral category. Yeah. You know, you're asking such an important question. The answer to why hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin have been used by people is that people have been duped. I don't know a better way to say it. There's so much misinformation out there. A lot of it done just to create havoc in our society. And a lot of it's done from, from our country alone, but a lot of it is also done from a variety of European and um, Eastern European countries. This is this misinformation has been a battle that we've fought throughout this pandemic, and it is just a tragedy. You know, ivermectin is a fabulous drug, drug for animal and human worm infections. It's been studied very carefully, and to date there is no good data to suggest that it helps either prevent or treat COVID. No good data that it does that. As a matter of fact, just today, the FDA and the CDC came out with an announcement about all the in, all the cases that they're seeing in the emergency rooms now of toxicity from people taking ivermectin because they think they're treating or preventing COVID. And they're winding up with neurological toxicity, gastrointestinal problems, heart rhythm disturbances. It's, it's, um, there's no substance behind it. And you know, the story is identical for hydroxychloroquine. There is no good science to support that. But if you go on the Internet, you can read all sorts of people making all sorts of statements that just are flatly lies. Let me ask you another question. Uh, and this kind of goes back, Professor, to the, the issue of the virus coming on as if we turned on a switch and people that wish to turn it off as if it'll somehow end on a certain date at a certain time. Uh, you know, the, the, the notion, as we've seen historically with other uh, attempts, as successful ones, I might add, to, uh, to eradicate uh, uh, certain viral infections. Let's take, for example, polio. We know that largely polio in the United States, at least, and while it crops up occasionally overseas, it's largely been eradicated in the United States. The polio vaccine found to be 95 percent effective. But I was surprised to find out that while it came on the scene uh, for distribution in the United States as early as 1955, uh, those of us that think it somehow just wiped it out overnight, that's not true. I find that some of the cases of 
polio continued to exist in the United States as late as 1979. Now, that, to me, as a novice, suggests that that any sort of um, uh, medication or, or vaccination, as in the case of COVID, is not going to, even if the entire population is vaccinated tomorrow, is not going to disappear immediately and overnight. Is that accurate? That's very accurate. That's beautifully put. The, the, um, this is a battle that we're going, that we're waging with this virus right now. The best tools we have against it are what we call the non-pharmaceutical interventions, masking, social distancing, and not getting together in congregate settings, and the vaccine. Those are our tools, and they're very good tools. But as you just said, they're not sufficient to overnight get rid of the virus that causes COVID. That's why we're going to, what we're talking about really is managing this virus, getting the number of cases down so low that we can live a normal life here on this planet together. And that's achievable. There will still be some cases that will occur. Most of them are going to be pretty mild. Some people, but very few, are going to wind up hospitalized, and even fewer are going to wind up dying. But, you know, think about this. Every year, around... 30,000 Americans die of influenza. And, you know, nobody thinks about influenza disrupting our life, but there are 30,000 fewer Americans every year because of influenza. Well, I think that with getting people vaccinated and just using some prudence, we can get the numbers down even lower than that for the virus that causes COVID. And then we will be able to live a normal life on this planet. But at the same time, recognizing that we've got a foe to deal with, and it's going to be a long-term battle. Yeah, and, and that's a well, a, a very well said, uh, Doctor, that this is a battle, it is a foe, and we're not going to make this go away by wishing it away or doing nothing. We have to play our part in this battle, and it's multifaceted. There are various tools that are available. No one is perhaps effective without the others, but a combination of same and doing our due diligence, we can get through this. But if we think we're just going to wish it away, that's not going to happen. Professor John Schwartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus, UC Berkeley. Thank you so much, Professor, for uh, setting the record straight and spending some time with us on this edition of Lifeline. 518 from KFAX. Update on traffic. This report is sponsored by Heart. Erica Carrillo is a 23-year-old single mother raising a son, Giovanni, alone. It's been a difficult time. Two years after Giovanni was born is when I started dating again. And I was staying at my mom's house and then I found out I was pregnant. I realized I just couldn't handle the second baby. Erica says fear drove her to make a fast decision to have an abortion. At the clinic where I go for my um, primary, they don't do like med- uh, abortions. So they do a medical abortion where you take the pills. So that's the option that they gave me, and I was like, okay, that's fine with me. I took the first one there, and then they prescribed the ones at the pharmacy uh, for me to take. I realized I, I just couldn't do it, that it didn't feel right. And I couldn't sleep, I just kept on thinking, like, if I had one child, why would I be doing this to my other child? Like, that's my child, too. My doctor had said that there is um, that there is no way to reverse it, um, like you know the the abortion and whatever. But I was like, no, there has to be a way. There has to be a way. 
Erica went online and looked up abortion reversal. What she found was real options. She made an appointment for the next morning. When I arrived here at the clinic, like I felt really welcome and I didn't feel judged. The abortion pill protocol is based on taking the anti-progesterone medicine and then three days later taking a, uh, a medicine that brings on labor and will induce the body to reject the pregnancy. We know that there's a significant number of women who change their mind, they have regrets, they, they feel guilt after taking that first abortion pill. And we want them to have the option of finding a place, a center like ours, that can offer this treatment. Right away, I showed her on this big screen that she had a nine-week baby, and it had everything. Seeing the heartbeat and seeing it wiggle was like a jump of excitement and the little flame of hope for me. The abortion pill that is used to induce an abortion is an anti-progesterone. So the abortion pill reversal gives additional progesterone to overcome that anti-progesterone effect of the abortion pill. So it's a very safe procedure. You have every right to change your mind and do what you feel is right for you. I feel happy and can't wait to have my baby. On May 5th, 2017, Alberto Gabriela Spinoza Carrillo was born. A 20-inch, 7-pound, 5-ounce, healthy baby boy. Erica says her prayers have been answered. Erica's story, in many respects, is emblematic of the challenge that many women face in a unplanned pregnancy, and that is stress, pressure, lack of information, decisions made sometimes in the heat of the moment that oftentimes are irreversible and can have lifelong consequences. Thank God that organizations such as our friends at Real Options are available to not only provide women with real options, but alternatives, even when a decision has been made that really at the core, at the very heart, was not what they wanted. Joining me now is Tasha Kearns, Director of Nursing for Real Options. And Tasha, that story of Erica is is heartwarming in many respects. And, uh, and I think it's important for women to be aware of the fact that even when you've made a decision to medically terminate a pregnancy, that it's not always too late. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. Most people do not know that you can stop the abortion pill process once it has started and successfully sustain that pregnancy. Uh, abortion pill reversal is a safe option for women who have taken the abortion pill, changed their mind, and are now fighting to save their baby. When we talk about this, and the doctor in the video mentioned it uh, uh, briefly, but, but essentially, is this almost like inducing labor? Is it almost like a forced uh, miscarriage? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So what happens when you take the abortion pill is it does... Nope. Did we lose her there? Hang on just a moment. We're going to get her back on the line. I, I want to mention, by the way, as we're getting her back on the line, if you're in a circumstance or someone you know has made the decision to terminate a pregnancy with the abortion pill, 
within a set period of time, that can be reversed. If you want to get more information, there is a helpline available, which is 877-558-0333. That's 877-558-0333. And as I mentioned, if you catch it in time, it can be reversed. Sorry about that. Uh, Tasha, please go ahead with your answer. Yeah, thank you so much. So the abortion pill, it's actually a two-day multi-pill process, and it takes place at home without the supervision of medical professionals. That first pill that's taken on day one is called mifepristone, and it blocks one of the main pregnancy hormones called progesterone from getting to the developing fetus, ultimately causing fetal death. That second pill that's taken anywhere from 6 to 48 hours later, typically on day two, it's called misoprostol. This medication is what causes the woman's body to induce a premature labor where she will have severe cramping pain and bleeding until she does pass the fetus and any of the remaining products of conception. Wow. And these pills are provided, sent home with a woman, no medical supervision, nobody there to make sure that nothing goes wrong, nobody to provide any uh, moral support at all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I recently had a patient explain her experience taking the abortion pill. And she stated that she was not told the truth about the severity of the pain and the bleeding that she'd experienced or how traumatic it would be to pass the fetus alone in her bathroom, hearing Mm. it splash into the toilet after hours of laboring. So many patients over the years have relayed the same story to me of, I wish I would have known. And they're definitely not prepared for that short or the long-term ramifications you spoke about earlier of taking the abortion pill. And I would suppose there are many cases where, as in the situation with Erica, they take the pill, and in that moment, just the stark reality of what's about to take place suddenly crystallizes their thinking. They want to back away, and many times they don't, because I would suspect um, at any abortion clinic where medication of this sort is provided, there's probably little of any uh, counseling or information provided in, in the event a woman changes her mind. Yeah, unfortunately, that's correct. Abortion providers do not say anything about the abortion pill reversal process to patients considering abortion. They actually tell women that taking the abortion pill is final. Uh, If a patient changes their mind and wants to stop the abortion from taking place, they would refuse, claiming that the abortion cannot be stopped. And like you mentioned, when Erica went back to her physician, as we heard in the video, she expressed she wanted to stop the abortion, and he said it wasn't possible, and he turned her away. Mm. So it's absolutely critical that women considering taking the abortion pill are fully informed about reversal options, so that if they find themselves feeling this overwhelming sense of regret after taking the first abortion pill and want to stop the process, they are then empowered to take control of what's happening inside of their body and make the decision that's right for them and their baby. And, of course, information and time is of the essence. I shared a moment ago while we were reconnecting with you the helpline number. I'll mention that again for listeners at 877-558-0333. And for some who might say, well, gee, you know, this seems to be playing Russian roulette in such a short period of time. Just how successful is the reversal process? I understand by doing some reading that Real Options has had 19 babies babies born to 17 different moms. I guess that means we had a couple of twins in that batch um, that took place as as a result of a woman who has decided to take the abortifacient and then change their mind. Yep, you're absolutely correct. So we have had 19 babies born through this mid-abortion rescue treatment, and that is two sets of twins there. 
Um, so it's it's effective. Uh, when our patients come in for this abortion pill reversal, uh, we get with them right away to start the, the process as soon as we can because time is of the essence. I want listeners to understand that we are presenting these stories so that you can understand the totality of, of the positive side uh, of what has been a tragedy in America since 1973. And so often the accusation is that, well, you pro-life folks, you're only interested in, in delivering babies and nothing more. Organizations like Real Options are there for women start to finish. That means everything from confirmation that a pregnancy, in fact, is, has occurred to providing advice, information, counseling, prenatal care. Um, certainly we've talked about things like uh, confirmation of the health of the child through sonograms, et cetera, et cetera. All of those services up to and including, and perhaps most importantly, emotional support, spiritual support, all available to women who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies with no one to turn to. Realize that Real Options is there. We want to support this organization and make sure that women are aware of that Real Options, in fact, do exist. For more information, you can go online to friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Or again, that emergency helpline that I mentioned a moment ago at 877-558-0333. That's 877-558-0333. Our thanks to Tasha Kearns, Director of Nursing for Real Options, for that update. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. I want to update you on some fresh news. There are now a total of 13 U.S. service members dead from the attack in Kabul, Afghanistan, there at the airport. The Pentagon confirming the additional death, along with the injury count now standing at 18. One of the explosions outside the airport and another was at or near a hotel close to the airport. It's certainly a tragic day even as we're hearing that um, the process of removing both foreigners and Americans that wish to leave Afghanistan is not going well. In fact, the White House now admitting, quote, not every single Afghan who wants to leave the country will be able to do so. This following the death of these 13 American service members. Joining me now with some insights is Lieutenant Colonel Sargis Sangari. He is the CEO and founder of Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. He is a retired United States Army colonel who saw extensive combat in the Middle East as a Special Operations Forces soldier. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Sangari, thank you so much for being with us. It's good to be here. Looking at what has transpired, uh, I, I suppose in some respects, after 20 years in Afghanistan and all the challenges that we have faced there, that the likelihood of this quote-unquote going well probably wasn't better, wasn't all that strong, but I would imagine that those of us from the outside looking in, or at least hoping it would have gone better than this. In your estimation, and I know this is a loaded question, but in your estimation, what exactly went wrong here? Well, look, uh, as we say in the military, that uh, no plan, uh, you know, goes the way you want it uh, after you cross the line of departure. Uh, anything can fail. However, going back to October of 2001, even Rumsfeld knew we would have to sometime possibly leave Afghanistan. And the fact that the State Department could not get its act together to do a simple five-page memorandum with the countries that are surrounding Afghanistan to say, look, we may have to leave in a certain period of time. We have all these SIVs. 
You're going to have to process them. Here's a five-page memorandum. Can you take maybe possibly 2,000 of these SIVs in a temporary hold as refugees so our State Department can process them? When you have 1,200 consulates throughout the world, and that's just the consulates, I'm not counting the embassies. I should say uh, 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 not 1,200, but uh, 100, uh, 120 of them out there. You're not going to be able to take all the individuals throughout the entire consulates and uh, everywhere in these countries, put them in uh, uh, air base in Afghanistan and process 80,000 SIVs. It just doesn't work that way. So the fact that you are a State Department and you cannot understand the personnel you have, the structure you have, simplicity of doing a memorandum that you could have probably had on the shelf two years even prior to execute is beyond comprehension. When you're the Department of Defense and you just leave equipment that can fall in the hands of the enemy, last month I went up to D.C. I met with congressional leaders the day after we found out we had equipment that were left in the background, and I said somebody needs to go and get their hands on this stuff before the enemy gets their hands on it. You don't leave your doors open. And now we have the Chinese looking at exploiting our equipment, the Taliban's using it to trade for oil from Iran, and look where we are today with the attacks that are taking place against our soldiers. You know, there's there's so many things wrong with this, I don't know where to begin. First off, you know, we, we've been hearing talk about uh, troop drawdowns, uh, even going back as far as the Biden administration. And we know certainly the negotiations to ramp up withdrawal began in earnest under President Trump. I, I would imagine, though, as much as we're thinking of troop withdrawals and the drawdown taking place over a prolonged period of time, knowing that a date was coming, why the United States government did not, in like fashion, engage in personnel drawdown, so to speak, between embassy personnel, contractors on the ground, and, and quite frankly, even friends of ours that have assisted us in translation modes, et cetera, et cetera, why there wasn't a gradual withdrawal of all of that personnel as well, so that by the time we were ready to actually make a, an official public announcement, we're about to do this, that there was practically not much other than the basics left behind. I mean, I, I, now that's being said from a pure civilian viewpoint, but is, is that crazy from a military standpoint, or we just missed the ball on this? No, you have individuals that are in charge that uh, would be fired on the spot. You can't have these individuals running the uh, State Department, Department of Defense. Unfortunately, uh, they're better at covering up their behind and uh, uh, ensuring that, uh, you know, they prepare for their next job than anything else. I mean, this is the reality of how Washington works. You know, uh, the previous POTUS, before he went into negotiations, before even negotiations started, he sat down with the leadership of the Taliban and told them, I know where you live, I know where your family lives, and by the way, most of these individuals that we're fighting, uh, they probably have family members in the United States, and I wouldn't be surprised if you drive up and down between Baltimore all the way to D.C., go look at some of the houses that their family members own. And he told them, I know where you live, where your family lives, and I know where your village is. Now, with that said, I can kill you anytime I want. Are you ready to walk into negotiations with us? He set the stage even before the negotiations to say, I have leverage, and I'm going to use the capabilities. Now, when you go into these discussions and the Taliban comes to the table, and by the way, they didn't come to the table because we went and talked to them. They came to the table because we use our economic power to pressure Pakistan. How do we do it? I mean, we put economic sanctions on Iran. We kept the port of Charbakhar open. 
which is a port for Iran. We do not put on sanctions. And we had India, which is our partner, counter against China to develop that port, not only to counter China's ability to develop ports against our wants and needs to be able to move oil for itself rather than for our allies in Southeast Asia, but we also allowed them to build a railhead into Afghanistan. We put pressure on the Pakistan that was harboring the Taliban to say, you're going to have to go sit at the table and talk to the Americans. That's how you use your economic pressure. You don't turn around and say, here's a boatload of money. Now do what I want you to do. The problem is we have political parties in this country that have been used to and been taught from the day one they became politicians, go buy somebody for your favor, or you go take money in order to stay in your position. They think they could translate that to working with somebody overseas. These individuals only know one thing, is that if I walk in with a gun in my hand in a meeting and I've done travel engagements, you're going to listen. Well, and, and the irony is, of course, that you you know the, the the same thing is true of of you know dealing with uh, with a mob member. You know, they you can you can pay them for protection, but the minute you've paid them, <laughs> the option for them to follow through or not is entirely up to them, and you have little if any recourse. I think the other sad irony in all of this is that we understand there are aspects of the build-out of this war from the very beginning that were designed on completely inaccurate, if not intentionally false information, whether we're talking about WMDs, whatever the case might be. I find it appalling that the Pentagon, along with the president for that matter, in the days following the beginning of this uh, disaster in Afghanistan, said that, well, we just, we just didn't expect this. And, I'm, and I was wondering to myself, and, and Lieutenant Colonel, maybe you can address this as well, how could we be in-country, boots on ground, contacts everywhere for 20 years, and then suddenly say we're surprised about anything? If we didn't fully expect what was going to happen with such a sloppy withdrawal, then shame on us. Well, let's say you were surprised about it, okay? Let's say everything went wrong, you were given the wrong intelligence. The Taliban broke their contract with us. The Taliban went in and started took equipment that we left behind. The Taliban started pressuring for money, and they weren't asking for $100 million. They were talking about billions for the U.S. to give them. Secretary Blinken yesterday stood on stage and basically said that I'm going to use whatever I can to my political abilities and my economic power to try to resolve these issues with Americans left behind. What does he mean? That means I'm going to give you money in order to allow those Americans to go through. Now that this attack has taken place and there's no multi-force structure on the ground, the U.S. military and the State Department, who could not control this environment, oh, by the way, the Central Intelligence Agency chief director, when you go and sit with the Taliban in a secret meeting and then they go ahead and attack America and kill Americans, in the Middle Eastern perspective, they just spit in your face. So your CIA is incompetent, your Department of Defense is incompetent, your uh, Department of State is incompetent, and now you're asking Americans on the ground, by the way, I can't save you, I can't do anything for you, but why don't you grab your happy blow behind with your family and trek through those mountains on your own, trying to negotiate tribal land with no money in your hands and try to get to a country that is safe for you. This is ridiculous. Uh, you have to fire people. And if you're not going to fire people, because obviously these uh, institutions are going to protect themselves, then at least when post-mortem sits in, I hope that I see politicians on both sides of the aisle 
ask the direct question, was this done on purpose, just for the record? And if it wasn't, then why were you so incompetent in executing a simple thing? Would it be your State Department not having a five-page memo? You tell me you couldn't have ships that have been sitting in dry dock because of COVID, that birds are putting feces on. You can have one of those in the waters in, in, in the Ocean to try to get people on them. I mean, it's the simplest moment of equipment. We put 150,000 soldiers in a span of 24 hours in World War II on the beaches and assaulted the beaches in Normandy. You're telling me you can move 80,000 people with the equipment and the weapon systems that we have today? To a safe country? Well, not only no, that, but the other thing here which shows an appalling lack of incompetency is, and I'm glad you brought up the reference to World War II, after, after we thoroughly beat the Germans, after we thoroughly beat the Japanese and brought both the European and the Pacific theater to a complete conclusion, and we began even rebuilding these nations through the Marshall Plan, we didn't leave all that equipment behind for the Germans and and uh, and strong adherence to Nazism and to rebuild an ad hoc army. We destroyed it. We brought back what we could and what we couldn't got blown up, tossed off the cliff, or dumped dumped in the ocean. Instead, here we just walked down, basically handed them the keys to billions of dollars of equipment and technology. And now, as Lieutenant Colonel Sangari mentions, much of that in the hands of the Taliban and the Communist Chinese. Lieutenant Colonel Sarjit Sangari, CEO and founder of Near East Center for Strategic Engagement. We appreciate your time and the insights. More information on the web at NECSE.net. That's NECSE.net. 548. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. seems the the uh, the theme song of many California corporations these days it's all about hit the road jack and don't come back no more it's amazing if we look at a tally and you won't get these numbers volunteered by the state of California but if you look at a tally of the number of major global corporations that once called proudly California home that have now gone to cheaper ground be it Nevada Texas or elsewhere it is shocking. And most disturbing is, could this potentially upset the economic balance? California has always been proud about the fact that if we were an independent nation, we'd be the fourth, I'm sorry, the seventh most powerful economic force in the world. You have to wonder how long that's still sustainable. Joining me now is Ronald Stein, founder and ambassador for energy and infrastructure at PTS Advance. And Ron, boy, a lot of them are taking the hit the road jack mentality, and it's quite frightening. It's an exodus all the way. And, uh, yeah, I think the report that I was talking about in my op-ed, there's 272 corporate headquarters have left California in a short 41 months. Wow. And the interesting thing is the average has been between, like, five and six a year. But this year, I think due to Newsom, he's helping to accelerate it, the... It's double. In the first six months of 21, it's averaging more than 12 
12 monthly average people leaving, companies leaving. And we're taking with them, you know, some, you know, usually high paying jobs and taxes. And it's, it's surprising. And I guess it justifies why we lost a Senate seat. I mean, a representative seat. The population is decreasing. And part of it's because the corporations are leaving. They're taking the jobs. Yeah, sadly, we're we're seeing the creation of an environment here. What between uh, the the issue of forest fires, high taxation, the impact of COVID, and I know that the state will probably claim that most of the job loss is a result of COVID. But as you point out, and you referred to this report, uh, why company headquarters are leaving California in unprecedented numbers, that uh, this exodus uh, well preceded the advent of COVID, and it continues to happen. And I would imagine, Ronald, isn't a lot of this due to not only the, the tax environment, but the regulatory environment here in our state? Craig, I think it's probably due more to cost, cost of energy. California has some of the highest cost of electricity and fuels in the country, and Newsom is doing everything possible to increase it. You know, we, we basically have to import our electricity because we can't make it here. And he wants to shut down, you know, the last nuclear plant. He wants to shut down natural gas power plants. You know, we're not replacing it. Well, and I'm so glad you brought that up because th- th- this this is a troubling issue. You know, we the, the current governor has said that he wants us to completely outlaw sales of the internal combustion engine, I think, by 2030 or 2035. I know it's, it's, it's on a fast track. And here we are in a state that if we make the shift to all electric vehicles, no one is asking the question, where is the electricity coming from? I, I did a little bit of research on my own here and found out that the average Tesla requires the equivalent of three houses energy for 24 hours in order to completely charge a Tesla battery. Now, Ronald, if we're in a state where, as you point out, we, we've, we've closed the last nuclear power plant, Diablo Canyon, uh, hydroelectric power is problematic right now because of the drought, they don't like natural gas. Wind and solar power is insufficient. Then how do we expect to go all electric when we have no capacity as a state to produce any electricity? Well, I think the governor's in Lala He issued that executive order that we're not going to buy internal combustion engines. He doesn't have that authority to do that. He can ask some of his agencies to help him. And, you know, the California Air Resource Board can write laws, which pretty much makes it impossible to buy an internal combustion engine, but CARB has no authority whatsoever over registration. Craig, you can buy an internal combustion engine from your neighbor and register it in California. You can go to Arizona and buy the internal combustion engine and register it here in California. He's only saying you can't buy a new one in California. You can buy it anywhere else, but you can't buy it here. And then you got the problem. You know, California has half the EVs in the entire country. And the good news is there's a lot of statistics are coming out of that. The statistics are showing us that they're only driven 5,000 miles a year. The people that can afford them, it's a second vehicle. It's a toy. A working family needs a workhorse. And these are usually small cars, but the trend now is to issue these. 
Well, the other thing, too, with the EVs, no, nobody knows the long-term viability. Uh, we know that the internal combustion engine, if you take care of it, I, I've got one that's 80 years old. <laughs> I don't know how many Teslas, this is not a knock on Tesla, but I don't know how many EVs are going to be on the road 80 years later. And then the question of how do we deal with the batteries, how do we recycle the batteries, the danger of the batteries if they catch fire. Uh, there was a recent report released, I'm sure much to the chagrin of Tesla, that found that a car battery battery, a lithium car battery fire can take as much as 35,000 gallons of water to extinguish, which is something like 10 times the average car fire in a normal um, gasoline-powered engine. This is not a commercial for one or the other, but it comes back full circle, Ron, that if we have a state that doesn't want uh, nuclear power doesn't want to create more nat gas plants. And we know even here in the city of Hayward, where there is a natural gas plant, that the city council tried to shut the thing down. And nobody's coming up with the answer that if we shut down all the power plants in California, how are you going to charge your Teslas or keep the lights on? Right. No one looks at the unintended consequences of, of doing something stupid like that. But, you know, you're right. The Tesla has a 1,000-pound battery. Now, you go to the Ford one one of the best-selling trucks in the world, its battery is 1,600 pounds. You go to the Hummer, the Macho Hummer. It has an EV version. The battery is 5,600 pounds. It's a 10,000-pound tank. And, you know, and all these batteries are made with lithium and cobalt. And you know where that's coming from. China. China and India. China. Uh-huh. And, and like I say, there's, Craig, there's not enough lithium in the world to build as many batteries as these governments want. And now we find out Afghanistan sitting on a billion dollars worth of lithium. Boy, that's that's good for national security. <laughs> yeah, and don't expect that to be hitting a ship uh, for the shores of America anytime soon under the current circumstances. It's a sad situation, and it's one thing to say we want to encourage renewable energy. We want to do as what we can to try and reduce air pollution. That's all well and good. I'm for that 100%. But we also need to be realistic about this, and that is that electricity is not free, it's not cheap, and you can't get something for nothing. And the notion that somehow we're going to have enough wind farms and enough solar power uh, resources, <laughs> charging batteries, might I add, to be able to provide the kind of electricity that a state like California needs for the future, not just for manufacturing, not just for lighting the lights in the house, but for keeping the state moving if we're going to try to move all EV at some point. It's just an absolute fairy tale because the totality of the homework necessary to complete the circle has never been done. Nobody said, well, you're going to charge all these cars off of what? Where is all of that green energy coming from? And if you look at the hodgepodge that was created in a state like Texas, you can see what happens when it isn't done in a coordinated fashion. The lights go out in the dead of winter. Ronald Stein is the founder and ambassador for Energy and Infrastructure, PTS Advance. More information available on the web at ptsadvance.com. 601 from KFAX, an update on traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.